Behind the news, my name is Doug Henwood. The legally mandated two segments today will hear from the sociologist Gabriel Hetland on popular participation at the height of the radical regimes in Bolivia and Venezuela, and Lee Cowart will talk about people who seek out pain for pleasure. On the face of it, the Hugo Chavez moment in Venezuela, which featured an army officer and began with a coup, looked largely top-down, and the rise of Evo Morales in Bolivia, powered by years of massive popular movements, looked authentically bottom-up. But as my first guest argues, if you look closely at what happened on the ground in those two countries, the story gets complicated. In his new book, Democracy on the Ground, Local Politics in Latin America's Left Turn from Columbia University Press, the sociologist Gabriel Hetland takes a look at popular participation, specifically in local budgeting in the two countries, and finds far more of it in top-down Venezuela than bottom-up Bolivia. There are many reasons for this, but among them, Hetland emphasizes that the Chavez government achieved hegemony in the Gramscian sense, that is, a transformation of popular consciousness that shaped people's day-to-day actions. Socialist self-governance became the common sense. It did not in Bolivia, Hetland argues in the book. He's a sociologist and associate professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino-Latina studies at SUNY Albany. Gabriel Hetland. Your book is a close study of two countries over a a very interesting political period of time, uh, Venezuela and Bolivia. Why these two countries? What did they exemplify amidst that big pink tide that uh, swept the whole region? There was a a pink tide or left turn that swept Latin America in the late 1990s with Chico Chavez's election in 98. Um, And then throughout the region, through the next 15, almost 20 years, um, there's kind of a second pink tide now happening. Um, But Venezuela and Bolivia stand out for being on the sort of so-called radical left edge of the first pink tide or first left turn. And that means specifically that they did heterodox or statist economic policies. They promoted participatory democracy as opposed to representative democracy. They talked about transcending capitalism and establishing some form of socialism, sometimes referred to as socialism of the 21st century. They had constituent assemblies. They nationalized industry, significant numbers in Venezuela and some in Bolivia. So these were sort of more radical than other countries like Chile, Uruguay, Brazil. So I picked Venezuela and Bolivia because precisely because there are these two more radical cases. And then they also have some really interesting differences that we can discuss if it makes sense to do so. I want to get to the details of those differences in a bit, but just give the quick version of those differences before we uh, get into the details. Venezuela is often seen as a more top-down process of change, looking back to the first left turn in the early 2000s. So Hugo Chavez was a military guy. He rose to prominence by committing a coup or leading a coup in 1992. He then won the presidency in 1998. Venezuela civil society and popular movements very disorganized at the time. And Chavismo, as the movement around Chavez came to be known, sort of happened from the top down. That's not entirely accurate, but there's some truth to that. Bolivia, by contrast, was a very bottom-up movement. So Evo Morales was a cocalero or from the Coca Growers Union. Bolivian civil society in the 2000 to 2005 period was incredibly active and radical. This is before Morales was elected in 2005. And so the route that Morales had the power was much, much more bottom-up and more sort of classic revolutionary, if you will. So those differences meant it was really interesting to compare participatory democracy, which I look at in the book, in the two countries. And as we can talk about, I didn't find exactly what I was expecting to find, but the differences set it up to be interesting no matter what. And spoiler alert, but what you found was pretty much the opposite of what you'd expect given those uh, contrasting backgrounds. Yes, it was. Um, So, you know, just to get into what I expected, I I expected that I was going to find more participatory success in the Venezuelan cases. And so I'm looking at local politics in the two countries and at a couple cities in each. And I thought I would find it more in Bolivia than in Venezuela because Morales comes from this sort of social movement party. Sometimes people call it a movement left party, as I do in the book. And uh, Chavez came from a more sort of military nationalist or left populist formation. Based on that, I thought I'd find more participatory success in Bolivia, but I actually found the opposite. And then I also have 
a left-right contrast at the city level in the two countries, which was also surprising. Um, and just to lay that out, I, I thought that I would find more participatory success in the left cases in both countries than in the right one. But I actually found a left and a right version of success in Venezuela and a left and a right version of failure in Bolivia. For years, really, I spent scratching my head trying to explain why I found those results that I did. Left and right, you mean uh, the nature of the local government? The yes, exactly. Yeah. So the, the layout of the book is that I'm comparing participatory reform and sort of some version of participatory budgeting in a city governed by a left party and a right party in Venezuela and by a left party and a right party in Bolivia. And so I thought that the left-run cities in Venezuela and Bolivia would be really successful in terms of their participatory experiments, and the right-run cities would not be. Um, but I found uh, the left and the right in Venezuela to be successful and the left and right in Bolivia to not be successful. Okay, now let's talk a bit about uh, the history of each of these two countries, uh, the, the macro histories of these two countries. Chavez was elected in 98, but there was immediately an awful lot of reaction against him, right? So what happened? Chavez came into power in 98. He enjoyed a bit of a honeymoon for a couple of years. He had actually surprising levels of support from some members of the business class. But that ended certainly by 2001 when he started to radicalize. He issued uh, 49 decrees, including fairly radical ones in farmland and oil and in fisheries. And he started to sort of talk a little bit more about redistributing wealth. And that really started to shake things up within Venezuela. A massive opposition to Chavez arose. There was a bunch of protests marches um, at the end of 2001. And then in 2002, 2003, and 2004, they were really conflictual years. There was a coup in April 2002 that the military fomented against Chavez. This was supported by the upper classes, some parts of popular classes, but by and large, Chavez's support was coming from the popular classes and opposition was more middle and upper class. And Chavez amazingly survived this coup and came back to power. He was moderate in his policies for the next year or so. And then from like 2003 onwards, he started to radicalize. And he kept doing that for years and years. And initially, the, the opposition was led by a sort of far right elements within Venezuela. And they really just kept trying to get rid of Chavez any way they could. There was a big oil lockout, essentially, in 2002, 2003. There was a recall referendum against Chavez in 2004, a boycott of uh, legislative elections in 2005. All of that failed to get Chavez out of office. And so then a new phase in Venezuela started after that. Now, as you said earlier, um, there wasn't much in the way of popular organization in Venezuela when, when Chavez uh, took office, and he kind of created it. His government actually organized the population in interesting ways. Yeah, definitely. And I would, you know, push back a little bit that there wasn't um, popular organization. That's somewhat true compared to Bolivia. And it's true that there was a lot of disorganized, demoralized fate of popular classes. But, you know, people like Alejandro Velasco, George Chicorello, Guillomar now have shown that there was significant movements within Venezuela before Chavez, but they were in some degree of disarray. Neoliberalism had been happening for several decades. There had been moments of intense military repression around the 1989 Caracaso in Venezuela. And so certainly there was a, a state of disorganization. And Chavez came in and he was trying to sort of consolidate his political power, especially after the coup in 2002. And so he did do massive funding of popular organization, massive mobilization of popular classes. And that led to an explosion of sort of popular organizing with really contradictory and multitudinous effects. I mean, there was lots and lots of organizations forming, some sponsored by the state, some outside of the state. And the state was often trying to control them. But Chavez had a discourse of participatory and protagonistic democracy. So it was a really interesting, very creative period within Venezuela. I think the early middle Chavez years are just rich in terms of all these sort of contradictory merging of bottom up and top down initiatives, which is you know a really fascinating time of the country. Chavez was very lucky to be governing during a time of high oil prices, which gave his government a lot of money to throw around, wasn't he? Yes, exactly. So this was historically high prices of oil. And so Chavez was just sitting on a massive amount of money, which predictably led to huge amounts of corruption. So that I don't get into that a whole lot in the book, but that's a another element, another layer that's going on. But it also meant he had a massive amount of money to funnel towards popular organizations and popular initiatives. And that allowed people to do really interesting things. A lot of local initiatives had money to build all sorts of community infrastructure and community projects. So it was a, a really interesting time and a very well-funded time. So you look at two towns or cities, specifically the uh, participatory budgeting in both. And participatory budgeting is interesting because, you know, the experience in the U.S., or at least what happens in New York City, it's just 
allocating crumbs. It's just uh, pure PR. Um, but this was much more significant. We're talking about actual uh, real decisions in real money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Latin American experience are going back to Porto Alegre in Brazil, and then certainly experiences in Venezuela under Chavez look nothing like what you're seeing in New York City under, you know, starting under de Blasio and a little bit before and other experiences around the US, which I would agree, they're basically distributing crumbs. In the Venezuelan two cities, Torres and Sucre that I'm looking at, this is real money. I mean, it's in Torres, it's the entirety of the investment budget. So any sort of new investments that's happening go through the participatory budget. There's literally nothing that doesn't go through that process other than, you know, significant money for salaries and lights and things like that. And then Sucre is not quite as impressive in terms of the amount of money, but we're still talking about 40% of the entire uh, budget going to participatory budgeting, which means that citizens are really controlling important decisions, not just the crumbs. And then it also is a much more organized process. So you have these huge popular assemblies where people get together and talk amongst themselves about what they want to do for their town. And they're talking about things that really matter to them. They're not just talking about a monument or a bench in a park or something like that. They're talking about roads, they're talking about schools, they're talking about cultural centers, they're talking about drainage for preventing flooding and things like that. So these are really important decisions, and that gives a different character to the participation there. It matters. Okay, now the two cities you looked at, Torres and Sucre, one, the first governed by a left party or set of officials, uh, the second governed by the right. There were fewer differences between the two than you might have expected. Yeah, I mean, it was really surprising. So I went in a little bit of an ideological research design. I, saw, I thought I was going to show something like early Laclau, the right sort of manipulating leftist discourse and manipulating symbols and organizations, but basically maintaining elite control. This is in Sucre, the right governed case. And what I found was they were doing serious participatory budgeting. I mean, they were devoting $35 million to participatory budgets. They had dozens of officials going week after week up into the hills of Caracas. So it's in the eastern side of Caracas, where Petare, one of the biggest barrios in Latin America, is. Um, this is an opposition party. It's an anti-Chavista party, but they were working with grassroots Chavista organizations and doing this massive participatory budget. So I went back to some buddies who I was staying with on the west side of Caracas who were from England and were leftists, and I would talk about it, and they're like, that's BS, you know, you're, you're lying, that couldn't be happening. And I sort of, you know, was really surprised myself by the actual seriousness with which the center-right party was implementing participation. The left case was a little less surprising, but even more impressive. I mean, there you have really impressive popular assemblies, of the whole municipality over a dozen plus years, really taking control, pushing in the direction of a sort of democratic socialism and going more and more and more radical. So both cases are really interesting, but the right wing one was particularly surprising. I'm speaking with the sociologist Gabriel Hetland, author of Democracy on the Ground from Columbia University Press. And you attribute this to uh, the achievement of the Gramscian dream of hegemony, right? I do, I do. I mean, it sounds almost foolish to make an argument like that today. If you look at Venezuela, nobody would say there's anything approaching a sort of leftist form of hegemony there or at all. But during the period that I was there, the center-right party was using Chavez's language. They were talking about popular power. They were using all of the organizational structures that Chavismo has, had created. Participatory budgeting is not something Chavismo created, but it was closely identified with Chavez and his project. Communal councils were something that the, you know, the Chavez government did create. This was a project that was really doing politics on Chavista terrain, and they were doing it pretty substantially. I mean, they were giving a lot of money. They were really letting citizens have significant, not full, but significant control over decisions. And so I argue that this is a form of leftist hegemony that was created during that time. And you know, if oil prices hadn't tanked, if Chavez had lived, who knows where it would have gone, but factors intervened. So this really interesting form of leftist hegemony didn't end up surviving. But I think that it's important to nonetheless rescue the experience at its height and say, this is fascinating because it had real effects on the right. I mean, this is a sort of central argument of the book that, you know, we hear a lot about neoliberal forms of hegemony, Margaret Thatcher, you know, being very famous, and she can point to people like Tony Blair and say, he's my greatest accomplishment. She said that in the early 2000s when she was asked that question. And I argue that Chavez could do that with the right in Venezuela for a period of time because they were copying him and they were really forced to play politics on Chavez's terrain. It's really sad and tragic that that didn't continue, but it was a really interesting time when it did. But it just didn't happen. They crafted this hegemony. It was an achievement, a political achievement. 
It was. It very much was. Yeah. I mean, there was a material foundation. So the high oil prices were absolutely fundamental to it. But basically, it was crafted by Chavez doing policies that I think left governments around the world should consider doing really massively organizing popular sectors and providing them with a discourse that they were empowered, that this was their project, that they should be protagonists. Ordinary Venezuelans, millions and millions of ordinary Venezuelans took hold of this process and said, we're controlling our destiny. We are the ones running the show now. And they didn't fully take over national decision making. And there was all sorts of contradictions, but there was a real sense of empowerment. And this was a political strategy that Chavez implemented. He probably did it for complicated reasons. I mean, he did it for personal interest, self-interest, political interest. I'm sure belief as well. I think there's a, a bunch of different factors. But what ended up happening is that it really transformed Venezuelan politics for close to a decade where the Venezuelan right really had to shift gears. And so you don't have coups against Chavez in that period. You don't have recall referendums, you have Venezuelan politicians of the right calling for more spending on social services, more spending on education, more participatory budgeting, better participatory budgeting. Gramsci's ideas about hegemony and what I'm calling leftist hegemony help you make sense of what was going on during that period. And I wonder if parties like Syriza or, you know, who, who knows if Corbyn or Bernie Sanders had gotten elected. These were going through my head as I was writing the book. Could they implement a similar strategy? I mean, could you have Marco Rubio <laughs> for expanding Medicare, Medicare for all? It seems absurd, but that's kind of what happened in Venezuela during this time. You have the right switching from implementing a far-right dictatorial neoliberal coup to implementing participatory budgeting and calling for social democracy five or six years later. So there's a really massive shift in the politics of the right because of this successful leftist political project. Bolivia, where Morales, his presidency originated in popular movements, uh, popular upsurge preceding his becoming uh, the leader, you would think that uh, the popular hegemony there would have almost formed itself, but it didn't quite work out that way, did it? Yeah, that's why I studied Venezuela and Bolivia, actually. I mean, I was nervous about Venezuela. I I didn't think I was going to find what I found in Venezuela. So that's, you know, that's the other answer earlier to your question about why go to Bolivia. I thought Bolivia would be more successful. A lot of people did. I mean, this seemed like the perfect setup. You have an indigenous president coming from social movements with decades of leftist background. You have incredibly powerful social movements that toppled successive right-wing and neoliberal governments on the verge of really revolutionary changes. And Evo Morales gets elected. One of the cities I look at is El Alto, which is the epicenter of the so-called gas wars of 2003 and 2005. It was run from 2010 to 2015 by a left party, the same left party, the MAS, the Movement to Socialism. Uh, A social movement leader was the mayor, really powerful sort of uh, social organizations that run the city in a way. So I thought, this is perfect. This is where I'm going to find genuine revolutionary democracy, participatory democracy. But I didn't. Instead, I found a lot of frustration. I found corruption. I found a, a local government that was not implementing participation, but actually trying to sort of stop it and regain control over the social organizations. And so I trace that to some of the national trajectory. I mean, I think it's complicated. There's certainly a lot of local factors, but Evo Morales took a very different strategy compared to Chavez. So he faced a similar dynamic of right-wing backlash in his early years in office. He had something, not quite a coup, but there was a sort of strong right-wing mobilization against him in 2008. There was massive protests against the Constituent Assembly, which ran from 2006 to 2008. Morales responded with a mix of mobilization and demobilization, and he ended up backtracking from all that, especially from 2010 on, forming what I call a passive revolutionary regime. So a very different one, also using Gramsci's language. And this is one in which basically a central dynamic was the demobilization of previously activated popular movements. And I think there's interesting, important reasons why Morales ended up taking that strategy Part of the reason is that he didn't need to sort of build a movement the way Chavez did. He could already count on one because it was already there. He was afraid of civil war. And he might have had a more sort of institutionalist instinct in in a sense. I mean, I think that from 2002 onwards, he kept pushing. Anytime there was a sort of critical juncture within Bolivian politics, Morales and the MAS pushed for a more institutional as opposed to sort of revolutionary route. And one can debate whether or not that was a smart strategy. I mean, the alternative might have led to massive death and civil war and all sorts of things, but maybe it would have led to some interesting revolutionary changes. But looking at the period that I'm looking at, you just have this national ruling party coming from the left, coming from movements, and then demobilizing those movements and ending up doing deals with the right. So some of the right wing figures 
who were pushing for Morales' ouster in 2008, 2009. He's lunching with them in 2013, 2014. He's making alliances with the Eastern agricultural elites in Santa Cruz, a sort of center of right-wing reaction. So he turns to the right, and that allows the right to just keep being the right, the way that they're sort of used to doing within Bolivia. So the dynamics of Bolivia and the dynamics on the ground in the cases I'm looking at were really very different and quite unexpected compared to what I was thinking might happen. It did not last in Venezuela, and the Maduro regime has been very, very disappointing. Total social collapse, massive outmigration. Why didn't it stick? What happened? So I think that there's, you know, a bunch of different factors, but I think that, you know, one of them is Chavez. You know, Chavez had this massive charisma, and he was able to keep together this really disparate coalition of revolutionaries, reformists, um, opportunists, military figures who weren't particularly interested in radical politics. He dies, you know, in March 2013, and so that's a big big blow to the process. But I think it's not just Chavez's death because Maduro actually wins some really important local elections about nine months later after his death in December uh, 2013. And so there's a moment where you think there could be a continuation of Chavismo without Chavez. But then the right sort of pounces. There's a massive set of protests in 2014. The price of oil tanks at that point. And so I think from 2014 onwards, you have this sort of polarized dynamic within Venezuela. And Maduro responds to that increasingly in a repressive manner. You know, it's somewhat understandable in the, in the early years, but then he gets you know, massively repressive. I mean, we're talking credible accusations of crimes against humanity, you know, major military operations in poor barrios. And economically, Venezuela is just devastated. A big, big factor to that is certainly U.S. sanctions, which hit with force under Trump, but start under Obama a couple of years earlier, and they have a sort of overcompliance effect companies around the world and countries around the world won't do business with Venezuela because they're afraid of running afoul of the U.S. government. So all of those factors come into play. And then there's also some really erroneous sort of economic policies, currency policies specifically, starting under Chavez, that just over the years accumulates more and more dysfunctionality. And that by the time Maduro gets in office, it's just incredibly dysfunctional currency system, which is allowing hundreds of billions of dollars to leak out of the government's coffers. So the accumulation of all those different factors is sort of dependence on oil, the drop in the oil price, Chavez dying, the currency policy continuing for many, many years when it shouldn't have, just meant that Maduro couldn't win uh, electorally. And so he turned to repression, he turned to authoritarian ways of governing. And that allowed the opposition to say, look, this government really is authoritarian. I mean, they've been saying that for years and years. And I think there wasn't a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's a complicated question. But uh, for years, they were saying that with, without a whole lot of proof. And then under Maduro, increasingly, there clearly is that proof. We don't have time. But if you get into the, the last couple of years in Venezuela, there may be a little bit of an economic turnaround going on. But socialism seems all but absent from Maduro's discourse. He's trying to implement deals with capitalists. He's trying to resurrect Venezuela's economy. So the dream of Chavez and the dream of a sort of radical left alternative within Venezuela seems very moribund at the moment. And it, it's incredibly sad and it has repercussions beyond. I mean, you, you can just raise the Venezuela specter in the U.S., of course, which they do. But everywhere in Latin America, it's raised whenever a leftist runs for office. And it, it's a negative message. You don't want to be like Venezuela. And there's reasons. If you look at Venezuela, 7 million people have left uh, because of this massive economic crisis. So it's really in a bad spot for sure. Finally, um, you also, towards the end of the book, uh, remind us that uh, despite the criticisms you have of the Morales regime, um, they did have some significant achievements. So just uh, recount some of those so we can go out on a more positive note. Achievements that Morales had was, um, one, just sort of combating racism. So Bolivia is a place that has suffered from centuries of racial discrimination against the indigenous majority. And, you know, if we're talking about racial capitalism, Bolivia is like the case for that, where there's just a fusion of class and racial, ethnic um, exploitation, discrimination, oppression. Morales really has an empowering effect on the indigenous majority. This is happening before him, but having somebody um, who looks like you for the majority in office is just profoundly empowering for Bolivian. So that's a piece of it. Another piece of it is the economic policies, which I think people on the left can criticize with reason, but they were relatively successful in terms of macroeconomic stability. I mean, Bolivia had years and years of economic growth. They managed to survive 
the sort of various downturns that hit Latin America during Morales' time in office. The IMF actually repeatedly praised Morales after his first few years in office for his successful macroeconomic policies, which interestingly violated core tenets of the IMF. So they're sort of praising somebody who deviates from what they would have told him to do. And Bolivia achieves this period of political stability, economic growth, rising living standards for the majority of citizens, massive decreases in poverty, massive decreases in extreme poverty as well, increases in schooling and health and education and all sorts of wonderful things. So participation was a disappointment within Bolivia. And we certainly don't see a socialist blossoming within the country, but on many sort of just social democratic and um, just developmentalist goals, Morales performed very, very well. You know, if we're looking at Venezuela and Bolivia through the lens I do in the book, you have to step back and say from a broader perspective, Morales was actually quite successful in many really important ways. That was Gabriel Hetland, author of Democracy on the Ground from Columbia University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. the second of 36 variations on the People United Can Never Be Defeated, composed in 1975 by Frederick Jeski and performed by Igor Levitt. I played the theme, a song written by Sergio Ortega that emerged from the Allende movement in Chile in the early 1970s, a couple of weeks ago. I love Jeski's tempo instructions. That one was With Firmness. Others include Weaving, Delicate but Firm, Slightly Slower with Expressive Nuances, Dreamlike, Frozen, In a Militant Manner, Lightly, Impatiently, Komodo recklessly, like fragments of an absent melody, a bit faster, optimistically, expansive with a victorious feeling, relentless, uncompromising, and fiercely. Next, finding pleasure, or at least satisfaction, in pain. Common sense, which as any Gramscian knows is Noah's good sense, is that people run away from it, but humans are endlessly complex and pain is no exception. The science journalist Lee Cowart is just out with a paperback edition of their book, Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, from Public Affairs Books. It's not just about sexual masochism, though there's plenty of that. Cowart also finds pain seekers among ultramarathoners, hot pepper connoisseurs, ballet dancers, and self-flagellating Catholics. Why? And why is such a popular practice so larded with moral disapproval? Here to explain it all is Lee Cowart. Most people think of pain as something you run away from. <laughs> you uh, and the people you write about have a somewhat more ambivalent attitude towards that. You suggest that maybe it's more widespread than we acknowledge. So what about that issue that pain is not necessarily something one runs away from, but might actually seek out? Oh, totally. There's this common misconception that masochism is something that is rare or strange, but humans have been using aversive sensation to create meaning in all different walks of life, from the sexual to the non-sexual and everything in between, and all of those overlapping areas. It's hot sauce, it's polar plunges, it's marathons, it's SM. And the more I looked into this idea of consensual suffering and what draws people to it, myself included, the more I realized that it's more of a spectrum. How much of an aversive experience do you want? And how do you want to opt in and out of that? And how are you making meaning of that experience? You underscore the importance of this being a voluntary experience. Masochism or any kind of submission to pain um, without consent is, is real abuse, uh, quite possibly a crime. I wonder if a lot of skeptics or critics would say that uh, that notion of free will is complicated and that maybe there is a whole lot of coercion in something that might feel like free will. So how do you tell these things apart? Well, that's the million dollar question, right? When you have something as 
complicated as the human brain and the human body. And then that system interacting with other humans, we get into questions of like, what is free will? And where is the line between good and bad masochism? And the reality is that line of sanity, of safety is a moving target. It requires the practitioners to be present and be embodied and be able to stop. Masochism is consensual. You have to be able to opt into it. What I describe in this book, they are things that people are choosing to do that they can stop doing. Now, in the case of eating hot peppers, once those hot peppers hit your guts, you can't really opt out of that part of it, uh, <laughs> as I've learned the hard way. But you can't choose. Now, I watched that video of you uh, <laughs> eating the hot pepper, and uh, there are a whole lot of conflicting feelings across your face as the experience was uh, <laughs> developing. You know, what was going on through your head at, at, in those minutes? Oh, yeah. So I felt like I had an opportunity to eat the world's hottest pepper, which is the Carolina Reaper pepper. And I wasn't really a pepperhead before this book, but I am a masochist. And I figured, how could I write about pepper pain without knowing what it was like? Uh, without really any buildup or experience beyond habaneros, I chewed up a whole Carolina Reaper pepper and got it all over my gums, all in my mouth. And then after about 30 seconds or so, I spit it out. I have never in my life felt regret so clear and so instantaneous as I did in that moment. I had no idea what that would actually be like. And I was immediately like, oh, no, oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. And, you know, it took about 45 minutes for the full ride to complete I was in there doing Lamaze breathing. I was like trying to crawl out of my seat. I was just drooling all over myself. I immediately put my fingers in my eyes and got hot pepper in my eye. But then the endorphins kicked in. Once the feel-good chemicals started flowing and once my brain started doling out those pain relievers, I was like, oh my gosh, I get it. I felt so good. I felt like I was rolling. I felt euphoric. I was giggling. I was, even though I was still in pain, I just had this uncontrollable giggle. I was writhing around in my seat and it was wonderful. And I've done it again since. I liken it to more of a psychedelic experience than a culinary one. Yeah, right. um, but there's a whole culture around doing this, right? Competitive pepper eating. Yes. Yes. You know, capsaicin is really interesting because uh, the molecule is a heat mimic. And so what it does is it tricks the temperature sensors in your mouth and makes them alert your brain to dangerous levels of heat. So your brain really does think that like, oh my God, you've put a hot poker in your mouth and you're going to die. But the reality is if you're not allergic to capsaicin and you don't have certain stomach issues going on, capsaicin is benign. It's just very, very painful. You read a lot about ballet. You have ballet in your past. My first wife was a physical therapist who worked with dancers. Mm. And uh, she used to take me sometimes backstage uh, at the New York State Theater, where she was working with New York City ballet dancers. And I'd looked at their feet, and my God, they were extraordinary. Um, I don't know how anybody put up with it. And it's all the women. Men don't have that, that same kind of uh, butchered uh, toe look. What is the relation of your past in ballet to you know, your future fascination with pain? Ballerinas are known for their hamburger feet, missing toenails, bloody nubs, like crazy calluses, just really graphically painful feet. And that's from the point shoes. And so I started dancing when I was four and was also raised religious. And so I was really indoctrinated in Catholic this. Religious, I, <laughs> yeah. My, so my, on my mom's side, Irish Catholic. And so, yeah, I come from a long line. <laughs> Of Irish Catholic. So obviously, I come to my fascination for suffering very honestly. I was very much indoctrinated into this idea that suffering precedes worth, making meaning out of suffering, proving yourself through suffering. And so in ballet, it requires you to suffer and to suffer beautifully. And you're rewarded for that. You know, I also look at my family and I have a lot of endurance athletes and they're also masochists. 
growing up in this environment where pushing yourself is a net good, where pushing through pain is a net good, and just absorbing that as a kid and really thriving in that environment gave me a framework to understand what good and bad was and how I could like orient myself and what was expected of me. And I did that up until my 20s. So when I left ballet, I lost a central part of myself. I didn't know who I was without it. And ballet was not good for me. I had a very awful time. I was very abusive. And so it created this pit of despair in me. And so after ballet, I went through a terrible time with self-harm and almost died from an eating disorder and have since fully recovered from both of those things. But I still really enjoy pain recreationally. And so this book started with me being like, okay, so I'm much healthier. Um, and I also still do some painful hobbies. The emotional valence of those hobbies are very different. I feel different when I'm doing them, but I'm still dabbling in pain. What's that about? Ballet is often gendered female, and certainly it's the, the women dancers who suffer the most from the painful rituals and very patriarchal in a lot of ways. Uh, and mm, the, yes. the women are subordinated. Uh, Balanchine yes. said ballet is woman, leaving you know, half the company um, on the margins there. But now, is there something, uh, does this say something about masochism generally, that there's something feminine or feminizing about it, or is that a sexist slander? I don't think that broadly there's a gendered aspect to it. Lots of people like to play with gender and masochism together, but you see masochistic behavior across all genders. And it's more just the cultural idea of what a masochist is has been influenced by its inclusion in the DSM and the origin of the word itself. Like the word itself carries a lot of cultural baggage because Kraft Ebbing wrote Psychopathia Sexualis, which was like the first European sexual pathology textbook. His contemporary, Leopold von Sacher-Massach, wrote Venus and Furs and was a very famous writer, still is. We still know Venus and Furs. But a little birdie told Kraft Ebbing that the plot of Venus and Furs, which is about what we would recognize today as masochistic submission, a little birdie told Kraft Ebbing that that was based on a true story. Without telling Sacher Massach that he was going to do this, Kraft Ebbing created a pathology and named it after Massach. And that's where the word masochism comes from. And he was very much othered as like a gross sexual pervert once that came out. They were like, oh, God, no, it's only cool when it's fiction. And it was very bad for him. That is the origin of this word that has now become a colloquial definition for all types of seeking pain on purpose. And since a lot of cultures, especially American culture, have puritanical ideas about sexuality, it's uh, denigrated the concept of pain for pleasure. And it's kind of muddied the waters of how we are able to reflect on how and why we use aversive sensation to create meaning and to feel better. Now, it's interesting that both masochism and sadism have literary origins. Uh, the word yes. <laughs> sadism after um, the, the marquee. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Venus and Furs, the protagonist Severin pushed his mistress, uh, Wanda, into the life and you know demanded a slave contract it seems as if there's a certain grandiosity or egomania around the masochist and being proud of being able to take it but also being wanting to be the center of attention in some kind of degraded way oh totally you know it, it seems like in venus and ferris he was very much topping from the bottom but i think it's important to realize and i think people maybe outside the scene don't really understand that in an sm scene the masochist holds all the power because they are the ones that are stopping and starting the scene, right? They're the ones that are asking for what they want and they're the ones that can ultimately call red or use their safe word and stop. So being the center of attention can feel great. People seek that out and through kink play, which can often have a lot of like guidelines and pre-managed expectations, it can give people a way to explore really high sensation, physical, emotional, and otherwise type play in a safe container where they can always stop what they're doing if they need to. 
I'm speaking with Lee Cowart, whose book Hurts So Good is just out in paperback from Public Affairs. You say, when I stub my toe, I cry. Obviously, you see more painful things than stubbing your toe. So what's the difference? So one of the really cool things about pain is that it is always subjective. There is no ratio of stimulus to output. Every single time you feel pain, your brain is cooking it up fresh. So it takes the information coming in off of your nociceptors, which are nerve fibers that can signal that potential damage is going on to the body. So your brain's like, ah, the nociceptors are firing. What else is going on? And your brain takes into account your emotional state. Are you expecting this? What were you doing the last time you felt something like this? Are you already angry about something else? Is this going to add fuel to the fire? Are you excited to experience this novel sensation? Do you have any other context clues that could signal risk or not risk? And so your brain takes all of this and then spits out the sensation that you get. So something that hurts you really badly on Monday might not actually hurt you at all on Friday or vice versa, just because of the subjective nature of this experience. And this is something that masochists do a really good job of playing with. They're like, okay, so pain is subjective and increasing anxiety and fear can increase painful sensations. So if you're having, say, a kink scene and you want to feel more pain, a talented dom can heighten your fear and increase those sensations without actually doing anything different physically. And I just think that's neat. (laughs) (laughs) I I was thinking of of Freud's notion of turning passive into active as a mental defense. So you're in, you you may be in some sense reenacting a trauma that was difficult in your past, but by being in control of it, you're somehow working through it. Sure. Do you have any sense of that? Yeah. You know, a lot of people play with that and find it to be wonderful. You know, I always like to say, you know, obviously SM is not therapy, but some people do find therapeutic value in confronting certain sensations in a safe environment where they do have control because that creates a different memory of the sensation and a different context for understanding that that can be empowering or fun or healing, or some people try it and they're like, oops, absolutely not. Actually, I was wrong. I don't want to do that. And that's great too. Whatever works for people. But there is this element of ownership over the sensation and being in control of what is happening to you that I think is really appealing for a lot of masochists. And then there are the medieval flagellants, uh, the practitioners of the mortification of the flesh. Now, I've long been interested in this Catholic sect, Opus Dei. Upper-class men who wear hair shirts and spikes in their thighs and sleep on hard wooden beds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the connection here with religion, very Catholic, it seems to me. Um, mm-hmm. Pain is a portal to eternal life. Pain is a discharge of guilt. What about that quasi-religious angle to uh, the seeking of pain? There is this coupling of suffering and worth and suffering to prove worth, or suffering to earn something. And the ability to harm the body to feel closer to God is something that comes up a lot in Catholicism and in other religions too. So there are a couple of things going on. One of them is that pain can cause altered states. Being in pain and the endorphin rush that comes after can cause a presence in the moment and an interior relation that can feel like transcendence. It's a very potent experience. And we tend to create meaning around experiences with that kind of potency. When we think about God, a lot of people are drawn to the idea of a just God, a fair God. And so to appease a God like that. It's like, look how hard I'll work for you. Look at how much I will suffer for you. I am going to show you that I am good by desecrating my flesh, by being in pain for you. And that is very potent. If you still kind of see this in the culture, we like to think that the people who are successful are successful because they worked hard and suffered for it. But like, that's often not the case nepotism, luck of the draw, things like that, savantism. A lot of people come by great wealth and talent without suffering, and that feels unfair. I just rewatched Amadeus this weekend, and I was really struck by how furious 
Salieri is that Mozart is just such a vulgar child that has never suffered for the gifts that Salieri thinks God has bestowed upon him and how unfair that is. And I think that really speaks to this internal hierarchy of worth and suffering that we see in the Black Plague, flagellants and stuff like that. You covered an ultra marathon. Certainly, it seems like lots of uh, masochisms involved with that. Uh, but your contact um, didn't approve of your angle and almost didn't want to let you come. Correct. He said the discomfort was a cost of competition, not its objective, and you beg <laughs> to differ. Will that stigma around the idea of um, enjoying pain will that ever be gotten over? It's just um, really persistent. It won't go away. It is persistent the kind of othering of the masochist is is done to preserve what they think is their good social standing. Those things can be deeply ingrained in people. But through writing this book and talking to so many people, I have gotten to have the really wonderful experience of someone at first being like, oh my God, I'm not a masochist. Oh, I, I would never be a masochist. And then 10 minutes later, they're like, oh, well, actually, I run marathons and I love hot peppers and I take ice baths. I'm a little bit of a masochist. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just kind of like clawing it back from this puritanical idea that it's wrong or it's weird and just realizing that people like to push themselves. People like to reach their outer edges and see what they can take. People like to play with their endorphin system and their endocannabinoid system. And it's very common. Like even, you know, mid 20th century, Kinsey is interviewing all of these college students and found that half of them like to be bitten during sex. Biting during sex is classic masochistic behavior. And that was half half of the survey group. Like it's just out there in the field. It's very common. And normally if someone has a strong aversion to being categorized as a masochist or a masochism adjacent, it generally signals that there's something else going on that makes them not want to be categorized with people who do it in a sexual manner. Funnily enough, the uh, state of Indiana just a few weeks ago, I think, uh, defunded the Kinsey Institute. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's just, you know, 60, 70 years later, it's uh, still a scandalous uh, line of inquiry. It's interesting that, you know, you write about the um, use of pain in uh, masochism as a mode of discharging guilt or doing penance, if you want to get religious about it. But it also makes people feel guilty. I mean, is there some kind of cycle of guilt that's hard to break out of? Oh, that's a good question. Because like guilt is so, oh my, there's just so much to unpack there, right? Because some people really run from feelings of guilt, and then some people run towards them. And then some people play with guilt to increase a sexual taboo or feel better about something else. Like it's a potent human emotion. Painful activities can make us feel less guilty. The idea of penance is really built into a lot of cultures. And a lot of times when you feel guilty, let's say you don't want to feel guilty, okay? If you feel guilt and you don't want to, it's an impotent feeling, or it sometimes feels like there's not much you can do to escape that feeling. That may or may not be true, right? There are ways to atone or, or do things that can fix an error. But if you're just left with this sense of ick, ick, I feel guilty. I don't know what to do. People use pain to kind of discharge that feeling. It's like, I can't undo this one thing, but I can punish myself with a really long run. And at that point, get the biopsychosocial rewards of pain. I get the chemicals in my body making me feel better. I get the psychology of putting myself through something hard after doing something bad. And then socially, I get the reward of doing something disciplined and doing something that has cultural capital. People come to these calculations in all different ways and do the math in all different ways. And that's part of the joy of for me, of studying masochism is just realizing that there are like kind of infinite ways to do it. And people make their own meaning out of it. 
you know, if you're looking for short, easy answers about why people are like this and who is a masochist, then you're not going to be happy with what I have to say about masochism. But if you love mess and you love getting into the details and the mushiness of how we, you know, interface with our own bodies and the world around us and use pain for fun then it'll be much more fun for you to look into masochism in your own life and not be so upset if you don't find a hard answer, a yes or no, or you might find that you're a little more softened by your own curiosity to the experiences of others. Yeah, if I like, uh, it's go- has going so public with your um, interests <laughs> uh, <laughs> by writing this book. Has this changed your experience of things at all? Well, I get a lot of messages and they are all across the board. There are some people who very much don't like what I'm doing or how I'm doing it or what I'm writing about. And to those massive wall of text emails, I wish them luck. It seems like there's other stuff going on. It's not really about me. In my own life, they're coming out as a masochist. The people who know me in my everyday life already know this about me. And so strangers finding out is, is no big deal getting messages from people who felt alone until they read the book. Like, that's why I do this. That's the, that's the most amazing part of this. People feeling like, oh, there's not something wrong with me. Oh, I'm not alone with this. There's a whole community of people who experience this and like it, and it's not shameful, and it's not weird. Um, or it's only weird if you want it to be. You know, it can get weird. <laughs> uh, but I was very much shaped as a writer and as a person by writers who were very brave in their vulnerability. Being a human is messy. And I think that there's this idea that you can't muddy the waters of self-reflection with the mess of your own life before you talk about it with other people. And so what I try to do is I just try to show how I am, warts and all, and just be like, listen, it's okay. We're all screwed up in our own ways. And we're all brilliant in our own ways. And the human experience is a mess. And that's fine. You can start there and it's okay. That's the spirit I tried to bring to my work and share with people to just encourage them to be curious about their own interior state without automatically judging it through a lens of a person they imagine who doesn't like them. That was the science journalist Lee Howard. Their book, Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, is just out in paperback from Public Affairs Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. There's no other way to go out of this interview other than with a bit of the Velvet Underground's Venus and Furs. Till next week, bye. his heart.